Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. As I prayed, in the 1700s in England and the American colonies, something very unexpected happened. You might know about it. Thousands and thousands of people turned from a life of sin to a life of godliness in pursuit of Jesus Christ. There was an increase in intense interest in the Lord and in His anointed Jesus Christ and in the salvation that He offers through the gospel. It wasn't there before in the same measure and then suddenly, beginning in about the 1730s, it exploded. It was inexplicable by human means. Something happened there. Something by the Spirit of God. Open-air preachers at that time attracted crowds, not of hundreds, of 20 or 30 or 40,000 people before technological amplification coming to hear the gospel by persons like George Whitfield or John Wesley. People would cry out with a conviction of their sin, overwhelmed by the realities of the gospel, of the threat of wrath to come, and of the free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And in mass, people believed. Not only were individual lives changes, but the whole moral fiber of Western society was altered because of something God did in the 1700s, which was not expected. We call this event the Great Awakening. It was one of the most powerful of those events of history which we call revivals. We have seen revival in our country on a smaller scale, even in many of our lifetimes. So for example, you can think about what took place in the 70s after the sexual revolution. There was a degenerating of society in many ways. There was a strong distrust of government, of authority of any sort. And there was a lot more going on. I wasn't there for it. Some of you can attest much better than I can. But what we can say is that despite all that was happening at that time that was bad, the Spirit of God moved in a unique way in what we now refer to as the Jesus movement. And as with any sort of revival, large or small, not every part of it was perfect. The devil is always at work to distort it. Yet there was a real, true movement among hippies disillusioned with drug and Eastern religions that they had sought truth in, turning to Jesus, who many of which still today are following Christ. This was a not a large scale, but at least a small scale sort of national revival taking place at least in one part of the country. We've seen even a sort of revival starting in the 90s where there is a resurgence of young people gaining interest in rich, deep theological truth. Young people who'd read nothing but sports magazines all of a sudden picking up books by great Puritans like John Owen almost impossible to understand, but reading this, desperate to know the true doctrines of Scripture and the gospel. Much of this, starting in the 90s, had to do, God used at least the internet, which was emerging at that time. People were accessing good, solid preaching, even if they didn't have it available nearby. 
And that sort of resurgence continued until five or so years ago, just a marked sort of revival, we could say. In all these cases, we can point to a real and a unique act of God on a small or a large scale where wide swaths of people gained an intense interest and devotion to the things of God, a love for the gospel, a conviction of sin. Now, if you're familiar with the term revival, when we think of that term, generally what we think of first is lots of people coming to Christ. That is true. But as the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out helpfully, revival suggests something that once was alive and needs to be revived, come back to life. That's not unbelievers. That begins in the church. That begins with genuine believers coming back to life in the sense of awakening to spiritual realities, coming alive again to the truths of the gospel, seeing the import and the power of these things. And then, because of that renewed energy and zeal within God's people, in a time of revival, it flows out in the salvation of many who are lost. But a revival always begins within the church, among the people of God, a burning heart among the children of God. This is the reason that you can trace many of the major revivals that have taken place in the last, say, 500 years, 600 years, to even sometimes specific prayer meetings. So the great explosion of missionary activity overseas that took place in the 1800s can be traced at least in part to the Haystack Prayer Meeting of 1806, a group of college students praying for the nations. It always starts in the church among God's people. There have been some who have supposed for this reason that if we just pray hard enough, follow a particular formula, and have a revival meeting Wednesday at 6 p.m. or Friday at 3, that we can sort of make a revival happen. But that is not the nature of revivals. Revival is something that God does. He does it. He's responsible for it. You can try as hard as you want. It won't happen without God doing it. That's why it's a unique, peculiar work of God in history to bring a revival, to awaken His people and light a fire beneath them and renew their enthusiasm and vigor. It's a work that God does. We can't manipulate Him into it. But it begins with the people of God as God inspires in them usually a, a sense of prayer. Because prayer is something we do that acknowledges that whatever we're asking for cannot happen apart from God. And that is nowhere truer than in the case of a revival. We can pray. I think in this season of life, you would probably agree that the tribulations that we've endured have been to teach us not to depend on ourselves, but on God who even raises the dead. This is fertile ground for revival. We can't make it happen. but These are the contexts in which God often does it. But what we can do is we can pray. We can make our altar out of uncut stones. We can pray and await fire from heaven. God has to send it. But what we do is we pray. We look to God to bring revival. We beg Him even desperately to do it. Distractions can abound. 
where we're interested in other things and our focus upon Christ dims. But when God brings revival, all of that changes. There is a focusing of the attention of large numbers of persons who are believers within the church upon the things that really matter in life. And that is what we pray and beg God to do. He warms the hearts of His people. May God send revival. He can do it. I mention this because in our text in Luke today, as we come near the end of the gospel, Jesus has just resurrected. It's the very day of His resurrection, and we've been following Him as He has come upon two of His disciples who have been walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. These disciples have been talking about the death of their leader, Jesus, but the identity of Jesus has been hidden from them. They don't yet know he's resurrected. Some of the women went to the tomb and said, there's no body of Jesus here, and these two disciples are struggling to understand what's taking place. In Jesus' words, they are ignorant and slow of heart to believe what had been predicted about Jesus, that he would die and that he would resurrect There's a mixture of faith or wanting to believe and of doubt. There's a sort of lukewarmness in them. They're not boldly proclaiming the resurrection yet. But by the end of their interaction with Jesus, they will be. A change takes place in them and all the disciples here in the early church that moves them from seeing the truth only very dimly with cold hearts to seeing clearly with hearts afire that afterward as they proclaim the gospel turns the world upside down. This is, if you want to put it this way, a sort of revival, a vivifying, a bringing to life that happens among, not strangers, but Jesus' own disciples in a unique way, but there are examples for us. So let's turn our attention now to Luke 24, We're beginning in verse 28, and we're going to see how God through Christ, His Christ, begins to warm the hearts of His people and bring about this sort of revival among them. So they, two disciples and Jesus, drew near to the village to which they were going, that's Emmaus. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And there eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. These two disciples in the text move from the beginning to the end of the text from blind to Jesus 
with cold, unbelieving hearts to, by the end of the text, recognizing Jesus with open eyes, with hearts warmed by what Jesus has said to them. That is a sort of revival, if you will. Now, this specific event in history is not going to be replicated in our lives. There's a lot that's unique about it. We confess Jesus is probably not physically going to come walk by you in the road and then open your eyes to recognize him. However, this is recorded for our benefit and there are so many parallels between what happened to these two disciples and what happens in our life as disciples, as followers of Jesus, that no doubt Luke recorded them so that we'd see those parallels. Not just the history of what really happened, it did happen, but also the parallels of how these disciples move from a cold heart to a warm heart, from blind eyes to seeing eyes through what Jesus does. It's the same thing that we always need. It's the same thing that we hope for ourselves. And therefore, we are going to look at this text provided for us today and note the marks of revival, if you want to call it that, which take place here, which are paralleled in our lives. If our craving, our desire, we can't make it happen, but it's what we pray for, is for God to awaken His people and therefore reach the world, then what we find here is invaluable. Marks of a real revival taking place. We see them here. So let's walk through the marks of this sort of revival as it happens the first day of the resurrection and as we wish for it to happen in our lives too. The first mark that you find in this text and in all revivals is that revival always involves our desire. It doesn't happen without God's people wanting it to happen. It simply doesn't. This principle isn't exactly taught directly in our text, but it is modeled for us if you look at verses 28 and verse 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now the odd part of this text is that little phrase, He acted as if he were going farther. This is really... Joseph of the Old Testament disguised from his brothers in Egypt and not telling them his identity so that he may test them to see what's in their heart. Jesus is doing just the same thing here. He's not lying. He's not being maliciously deceitful, but he's already concealed his identity from their eyes and he did it for a reason, not to be mean. It's to test them. It's to see what they really want. And he does just the same thing now in our text where he acts as though he's going farther. He's not going to go farther. But he acts as if he is going to go farther as a test for them. In other words, if they don't want him to stay, he's not going to stay. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I'll come in and I'll eat with them and they with me. 
He's knocking. They open. Now, you who know Christ, you know that in some sense, he just breaks the door down. It's not like the door is standing in his way. What will he do? He just breaks the door down and saves you. But the picture the Bible itself is using, notwithstanding that, is that in our experience, Christ isn't going to be there if he's not wanted. This acting is somewhat like God in the Garden of Eden asking Adam, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. He knows exactly the tree that Adam's hiding behind like a little child, probably with his feet sticking out. He knows which tree that is, and yet why does God ask that? It's always to test. It's always to see what the desires are, where the person is. It's the same thing happening here, that they have an opportunity to exercise their faith. So Jesus acts like he's going to walk away and as if he peers back to see what are they going to do. Christ wants us to know, whatever the process leading there, the fact stands that Jesus will stay where he is wanted and will not stay where he is not wanted. In a real sense, it's as if even now, this morning, Jesus walks on farther beyond us, spiritually speaking, and turns his head back to you to see what you're going to do. You may have noticed that in one sense, although it's true that God does the work in the heart that turns us toward him, so it is his work and the grace is irresistible. I'm not contradicting that whatsoever. Yet in our experience, Jesus does not come and force himself upon someone who doesn't want him. This is true of those who are lost. We could say this in some sense of believers. If you're more interested in your hobbies and in your car and in your house and your financial statements, if you're more interested in the potential future you've created for yourself on earth and that's become a sort of master to you, Jesus says, fine, go enjoy that. He won't entertain the opposition or the competition. Jesus, as a guest in this text, he's not going to impose himself says, I'm going to move on unless they ask him to stay. And he's successful in this test because that's exactly what they do. You see their heart in verse 29. He's walking on, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. Travel at night, especially in the ancient world, was difficult, but more than that, it was dangerous, so you don't travel at night. And they're using these arguments to convince this still stranger to them to stay with them. They don't yet know it's Jesus. All they know, as we'll see, is that he's been interpreting to them all the scriptures and their hearts have been warmed. They were discouraged when they started their walk from Jerusalem. They had very little hope. Their master and rabbi is dead, but now hope is reviving. Faith is growing. Their hearts are being warmed. That's all they know with this stranger. Perhaps they suspect it's Jesus. I don't know. Whatever the case, they want this man to stay with them. And so they bring as their reasons, it's going to get dark soon. The day is already spent. And they strongly urge him, not just maybe do this, but they are strongly urging him, please stay with us. There's a desire there. Their hearts are burning. They want him to stay. They urge him to stay. And that is sort of the question for you as a disciple as well. Is that you, those two disciples? 
Will you let Jesus just walk on? Or do you strongly urge him, stay with me? What if the cost to you is the same as the cost it was to these men and to most of the early church? You may lose your health. You may lose your home. You will suffer persecution. You will be outcast by your peers. You may go to the Colosseum and be fed to lions. You may lose your social relationships or your family relationships. That may be the cost. You let Jesus walk on. They will not let Jesus walk on. They don't even fully know it's Jesus yet. (laughs) You may not know everything about Jesus or Christianity, but the one thing they know with hearts warmed is we need this person to stay with us. Everywhere else is disappointment. Everywhere else is the dashing of our dreams and hopes, but this is the one person who by his speech is warming our heart, and we need this person to stay with us. Is that how you feel about Jesus? No matter what the cost, because there is a cost, you feel there's nowhere else you find the words of eternal life, and you ask Jesus, stay with me. If that's where you find yourself, whatever your level of understanding Whatever your fears and difficulties in this season, notice in our text how Jesus responds. So he went in to stay with them. It's not a perfect parallel, but you do see the same principle. If Jesus is wanted, he's happy to go there. And that is true in all of life. If Jesus is wanted, he's happy to go there. And if he's not then he walks on. That is sort of a first mark or notion about revival is that it always, without exception, involves his people desiring his presence with them. Always his people, starting with his people, always they want Christ. They thirst for Christ. There is a craving for Him. He alone warms their heart. Everything else in life becomes grayscale. He alone is in vibrant color. That's what happens in revival, always. So it involves our desire. But next, Luke shows us on a sort of small scale here that what happened with these two disciples the sort of revival they experienced was not birthed from their desire. There are many people who think the resurrection of Jesus was just wishful thinking. They so badly wanted him resurrected, whoever these disciples were, that they invented it, maybe even accidentally, and tricked themselves. But the biblical text is quite opposite to that. They didn't birth this by their desire. They didn't bring this into reality by a mere expression of their will. Their desire had to be present, yes. But Luke is clear that even here, this revival they experience, it is a work of God. It is birthed outside of themselves, comes upon them, and involves their desire. It's not where it comes from, it comes from God. That's the second sort of mark of a revival. It may involve our desire, it always does, but that's not where it comes from. It always comes from God. It's always a work of God. You can see that. If you continue beginning in verse 30, when he, Jesus, was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, 
Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Cleopas and his companion have proven they want Jesus with them. They've asked him, please stay, the stranger to them, please stay with us. And there they are, probably in the house of either Cleopas or the other disciple in Emmaus. And they've asked Jesus to come, and now he sits with them at table. It's toward evening, so it's time for a meal. So they're going to bless and break bread and eat it. What happens in this text was the common practice in that time. The host of a meal would bless the bread or give thanks to God or say a blessing over it, sort of how we pray for meals, and would break and distribute it. That's what's happening here. We've seen Jesus do this, though in unusual circumstances. We saw him say a blessing over the meal and break the bread when he multiplied it for thousands of people twice. We also saw him say a sort of blessing or give a thanksgiving over a meal, break bread and give it at the Last Supper, just before his death. Now we see it happening again because that's just how they did meals. But what is unusual about our text is that it's the host who does that. And this man, still unknown to them, is not the host. This isn't his house. He's been invited in. Cleopas or the other should have been the host at this meal. And yet, Jesus is the one, this stranger to them. He's the one who's blessing and breaking the bread and distributing it to them. It's as if he's the host. And why is that? Why have they sort of revoked that responsibility and given it over to Jesus? We're not told But probably it's because their hearts were warmed on the road. This man, whoever he may be, speaks with an authority not like the scribes. And he seems the fitting person to take control of this whole situation. And that is the point for us as the disciples of Jesus. And the point that Luke's going to make here. Jesus is in control right here. That's the point made throughout Luke. But it's being made right here. He's not the host, but he is the host. He's the one controlling what is taking place here because when any sort of revival, either what they experienced or what we experience historically or even personally in your own life take place, it's always because Christ is at the helm making that happen. It's not you. It's Christ doing. So it's fitting that he's the one in charge of this circumstance. Now, once he takes the bread and blesses and breaks it and distributes it, that's when the shocking things take place. It says in our text, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at the same moment, he vanished from their sight. Notice that it does not say, then they opened their eyes. This is a passive verb. Then their eyes were opened. And it parallels what we had seen earlier in the passage back in verse 16. It said their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept by somebody else, were kept from recognizing Jesus at the start. And now for them to come to recognize him finally requires similarly this, what we call a divine passive. It is a passive that's accomplished by God. Their eyes were kept from seeing him in verse 16. And now in our text, when God determines it, their eyes were opened. And they recognize Jesus. God is the one doing it. Who else would do it? Who else would it even be? It has to be God. 
Jesus opens his own identity to them by opening their eyes. And what an excellent lesson to take on the end of a hot iron and brand into the flesh of your heart. That any sort of revival, any sort of reawakening, a warming of the heart like they experienced, large or small scale, it is done as a divine passive. It happens to us from the outside, divine, by God. Our eyes are opened in a time of revival. It happens from God working in our lives, just as you see happening here. That's the principle. Because you and I, we're not very much unlike these disciples. You know it. That's why you can kind of put yourself in their position, even if you're not walking physically with Jesus. All the principles, all the dynamics are very similar to your walk with Jesus. Here they are walking with the risen Lord himself, but their faith is little. Their eyes are sort of blinded to see who this person is. But they say afterward, in hindsight, weren't our hearts warmed while he was talking to us? In other words, we couldn't really comprehend what was going on or who he was, but something was happening. Many times our walk with the Lord is like that. There is Christ, invisibly but just as truly involved in your life. He was this week. He was literally walking with you spiritually this week through his spirit. So it's not like he was with them, but he's not with you. If you're a believer, he was literally, really, truly with you. Did it feel like that? Maybe a few times. Maybe your heart was warmed a few times. You thought, wow, the reality of Christ with me. But many times, it just doesn't feel that way. It's like we see, but only dimly. We don't quite recognize even Christ in our life. We're a lot like these disciples, slow in heart to believe. Of course he's there, and in your happier seasons, you've had a strong faith, and you've known it. But then, as time goes on, you forget. So maybe God doesn't supernaturally come and blind your eyes to the identity of Jesus as he did for these two, for his own reasons. But there is a principle there very similar, which is, it happens, and then God is the only one to undo it. And in his timing, right when the bread breaks, it's not an accident, right when the bread breaks, God determines he will open their eyes. And he does it. Revival comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from us just trying harder and being better, praying more, although we should do all of that, of course. But revival comes from God, just like that. <laughs> wow, revival. Sorry, we did that, so that does not count as revival. Cannot manipulate God. But revival is something that, again, even as you see in this text, God does. It's a work of Christ. It's a work of God. Think about it. Who can awaken you to the spiritual realities? Who can vivify you? Who can make it clear? Maybe when I gave the introduction to this message and I talked about revival, maybe your heart burns in that way. You desire that. You want to see the lost reached. You want to see a reviving in your own self. And you say, what must I do? Well, certainly there are things you can do. You can pray. You can fight sin, etc. Be faithful. Yes. But ultimately, there is nothing you can do. Ultimately, it must be a work of God so that when it happens, in His good timing, you get no credit for it. 
It's so that he gets the credit for what he's done. You can't manipulate revivals because that would give us credit for it. You can't put your hand on the person's shoulder and play the emotional music and get the revival to happen in their hearts. No. It is a work of God. You be faithful, proclaim the gospel, live a holy life, pray, pray for revival. But when it happens, just as in this case, it's done to them and it's done to us as God's people. Our desire so much then is just like what was said of Lazarus. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And that's our desire. That's our only hope, that Christ would come to awaken us. This is very much like what took place in Jesus' ministry physically in Mark chapter 8. There was an instance where Jesus was at Bethesda. A man was blind Jesus came to heal the man, and many times he did it immediately. That's easy. But in Mark chapter 8, it says Jesus went to heal the man and then asked him, Do you see? And the man said, I see, but I see men as if they were trees walking. Jesus touches him again, and then it says, And then he saw everything. In that healing, we're seeing that in this case, it happened gradually, not an immediate healing there, but why? Jesus can heal immediately. I think it's because he's showing us this is oftentimes how he brings revival in our lives, how he opens our eyes. It's his work. He touches the eyes. We often in our Christian life are like the man who sees people as if they were walking trees. You see the outline, the vague contours. You know there's an eternity ahead of you. You know that heaven is real. You know that Christ is the most glorious being in the universe. You know of all his perfections. You have the theological data in your head. And you believe it. You see it as if you were seeing walking trees. It's vague. And then Christ extends his hand again. And now you see everything. That is a perfect description of what revival is, either personally or on a larger scale. You begin to see the things you already saw, but you see them clearly. And that is what you find even in our text, because these two disciples, they didn't really see Jesus, they didn't recognize him, but they saw something, because they begged him to stay, and verse 32 they explain when they say to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What they're suggesting is, now that they know he's Jesus, we kind of suspected that. It's like we saw that halfway. We saw him like a walking tree. But now their eyes have been opened and they see clearly that this is Jesus. So revival for them included the desire, please stay with us. We don't know what this is, but we're desperate for it. And then God's work to open their eyes. He was the one warming their heart, leading to the opening of the eyes. Christ was doing the teaching. God was doing the work. The Spirit of God was intimately involved. So it's God's doing, not our doing. True of all revival. So we see that revival for them, for us, for anyone, always includes our desire, expressed in prayers, but it comes from God as His sovereign work. 
And lastly, in our text, we see vaguely, but pretty clearly, what tend to be the effects of revival when it does come, even historically. So look, beginning at verse 33, now that their eyes are opened, what do they do? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven apostles and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Remember now, when Jesus acted like he was going to walk away, they objected, why? It's too late in the day for you to go. It will be dark. It will be dangerous. But notice that as soon as they recognize Jesus, that objection's gone. It's at that very hour they get up and go into the darkness, forgetting how they spoke with Jesus, because this burning has become a conflagration, and they have to say what they just saw. Literally, Jesus who died, he is alive. And it's, they can't even stay there now in the house and sleep and early in the morning we'll go back. But at that same hour, it says they have to get up despite danger or darkness, whatever, and go back to Jerusalem and speak what they have seen. And that is exactly what happens in times of great revival. Happens if you personally, if you want to say, have a revival, but happens historically when God moves. It's God's people waking up like this, seeing Christ, hearts are warmed, caught on fire, and now they go. And where previously, and this is fine, this is a part of our faithfulness, sometimes evangelism can feel like pulling teeth, it can be difficult, it can be scary, it can be hard. You just be faithful. Go sow with tears and you will reap and return with joy, okay? But in times of revival, when God works uniquely in this way, there are still difficulties, don't get me wrong, but there's this compulsion. People want to go and share the gospel and they feel the expectation that others will come to Christ. So, for example, in the Welsh revival in the early 1900s, that was different than other revivals which tended to focus on preaching, which I think is much healthier, so there are some issues there. But the Welsh revival had a lot more to do with people gathering and there was singing taking place. But as with all revivals, in these meetings where they'd get together and pray and sing, lots of very lost people came to Christ. That's an exciting time. People would come to these prayer meetings in Wales in the evening, three, four, five o'clock when you get off work, run home, eat dinner, run back to the church, and go on until the wee hours of the morning. And it didn't feel like drudgery. There was an excitement. There was an awakeness. Everyone was anticipating lost people coming in, being convicted, and saved. It was an exciting time. Energy is one of the clear effects that God is working a revival small or large scale. Without having seen Jesus, without this awakening of the heart, if they had to go back to Jerusalem, they'd wait till the next day. It's late. Or they'd say, there's a lion in the road, as the proverb says. 
They wouldn't have energy to do it. But as soon as they are awakened to the reality of Jesus, they go that very hour, seven miles that they've just covered, doesn't matter. They go back, probably walking pretty fast, because they have to tell what Christ has done. He's alive. That always happens in a time of revival. A great energy takes place. And this energy compels God's people with a sharp focus upon Him and on spiritual realities to share the gospel, to pray, to do things that in normal seasons are very laborious. But in time of revival, hours and hours of prayer can pass by without you noticing. Again, it's a work that God does uniquely at certain times. This is one of the reasons that in a time of revival, so many, after the church is awakened, so many lost people are saved. It's because when the church wakes up, it has this almost unbounded energy to go share the gospel, to go tell people about Christ and his resurrection and his life, which leads to many people coming to Christ. Notice, however, the surprising twist in our text when they come to tell the 11 and the others about what they've seen. It says, they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. I don't know why some of our modern translations don't make this clear, but the Greek is very clear that saying is something that was not done by the two disciples. It was done by the 11 and the others with them. They're the ones who say what's quoted in that verse, not the two. Some translations make that clear and some don't, and I'm not sure why. So this, this exclamation, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon, Simon Peter, that is what the two are told by the people that they've come to, the eleven and the others. So the two have come excited to say Christ is risen, but almost before they can say that, the people they're coming to tell that to tell them, hey, Christ is risen. <laughs> he is risen indeed. They literally say that. Christ has not just appeared to the two on the road. He had already appeared to Simon Peter, chief of the apostles. This appearance to Peter is told us also in 1 Corinthians 15, but none of the gospels recount the actual appearance. It just tells us he appeared first to Peter. So he did. And so when these people come to tell the other disciples that Christ is risen, the other disciples already know it because Christ had already appeared to them, or at least to Peter. And therefore now they say truly, indeed, as a reality, our eyes are opened as well to know Christ has risen. It is true. They're still going to struggle with faith and doubt. We'll see that even next week as we get into Jesus' appearance to them. But there is a growing faith taking place. It's interesting because this is one of the other very clear marks when revival takes place in history, is that it doesn't just take place in one small spot. Now, you and I may speak of a personal revival, and that is fine. You can speak of that. However, when real revival happens, there's nothing really personal about it. It's something that happens on a large scale. If you go back and read of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, People were surprised because one town would experience massive numbers of conviction and conversion. They would send a letter to a town very far away, and that town, just like these disciples, would say, it's happening here too. Christ went there, Christ went here. 
It is a wide-scale work. And here in the early church, that's sort of what's happening. Christ didn't just appear to one person. He's appearing to lots of people, eventually 500 at one time. That is something that often happens in a time of revival. And I think God does that here and does that in other places because he wants to make clear this is his work. We could say if there was revival happening in our country now, and I'm sure all news articles would say this, many would, well, it's just someone with a particular preaching method that's successful and others have adopted that method and are finding success. But when you have revival happening in multiple places with no connection to each other, you have to say this is a work of God. And that's how revival has always been. And that's our prayer. If you pray for revival, I hope that you will. We're coming out of a season that has been painful and difficult in many ways. We're in a culture, in a country, in a period of time. Especially those who are older among us will tell you, have told me, this is almost unprecedented in many ways, things that are happening. Who knows what the future holds? And yet we have to add, as we vote and do so forth, great, do it. But we have to add this fact as well. That even historically speaking, while you can't make God do a revival, this is the sort of context in which he does revivals. Just to demonstrate his power. It's when things are at a low place, then suddenly in many places, the spirit of God works in a surprising and a startling way. In the early church with all of these disciples, they were disappointed for three days before anything took place to encourage them. And then it did. I feel that the tribulations that we've experienced, large scale, or even here as a local church, they've been painful and we've grieved them, and hopefully to the glory of God we've grieved them, but they are like furrows that God has driven into us. It's His prerogative if He wants to now place seeds and cause them to grow, but we are certainly ready for that to happen. We have been trained not to depend on ourselves, but on God. This text, it's Christ doing. It's a passive work. We are in a position to know that. Perhaps two years ago, it wouldn't have felt that way. We would have felt as if we had contributed to some great work that God might do. But if God does a great work now, again, we can't make it happen, but should He do a great work now, just like we see in this text, I, for one, am not going to attribute it to myself. We are surely jars of clay, but we have a great treasure and the power of God to back it and to make it effective to the salvation of the people around us. And whether God does some large-scale revival, which He very may well do, it feels like we're well overdue for that, or if He doesn't and we're simply called to be faithful in the small, simple faithfulness, on either case, our confidence is as we crave and pray and desire that God should glorify and hallow His name through powerful acts done to support His message, His truth, and bring salvation. While we do that, we attribute to God all power and all ability at any point. I don't care what the news says and I don't care what the prognostications are of fear. At any point, God may freely break down the door, intervene, and bring a time of revival. And if He doesn't do it in our lives, it's fine. Because you're going to die really soon, and you're going to be with Him, and you'll be revived. You'll see Him clearly, and then before very long, He will restore the entire earth. It is coming. We see it 
with eyes squinting now. But our prayer is that God would awaken us, awaken every church on this road, awaken our entire city, every believer, that he would awaken his church from slumber and that we, like these two, would see him and say, was not our heart burning within us when we heard his words? Let's pray. Lord, we pray these things with a complete confidence that comes not from the flesh. We don't have powerful weapons to win over a country. We're not super persuasive. There are not many among us who are wise or noble or appealing to the flesh. You chose the weak things and here we are. You chose the things that are not that you might nullify the things that are so that you alone would receive the glory. So here we are as those who are not. Here we are as the dirt and the scum of all the world. Yet we have a great humble confidence in your immense power that you possess within your hand the billions of people upon the earth. And as Isaiah the prophet says, they are like dust upon a scale to you. They are inconsequential, a single puff of air from your mouth, and they all disappear. You alone hold them in being, and therefore, you have the power to bring salvation to any number of persons. We pray faithfulness for ourselves and always an increasing desire that we would see you exercise your great might, either through granting us small faithfulness in small times, or in granting us faithfulness in great times of revival. To you we give the prerogative. You are the host. It is your work. Our eyes are upon you. In Christ's name we pray.